Coming up on today's show, the situation in Afghanistan escalating. Will foreign policy now become an election issue in Canada? What about climate change? It's an issue for Canadians on this election campaign trail. We know that. You've said that. And we talked about vaccine certificates. There's a locally developed one in Calgary called Port Pass. All right, the latest from Afghanistan. Now, this is from the Taliban. The Taliban has released a statement saying, initial reports say 13 persons have been killed, 52 wounded. We strongly condemn this gruesome incident and will take every step to bring the culprits to justice. That is the statement from the Taliban this morning. Again, from the Taliban, so take it for what it's worth. All we know is there's been two explosions with multiple casualties. And uh, as I said, we'll wait until we get uh, more news and we'll pass it along as soon as we get it. In the meantime, though, we can talk about it's being played out on the campaign trail now. Uh, Justin Trudeau was asked about it. Um, Aaron O'Toole, Jagmeet Singh have all had comments about it and I've played them for you. But in terms of foreign policy, when we talk about a federal election campaign, how often have you heard foreign policy mentioned? It's a big deal in the States when they campaign. It's a big component of what they talk about. We don't typically bring it to the forefront when we're talking about federal election campaigns in this country. Global affairs rarely enters into the discussion, but uh, this week's events in Afghanistan is changing that, at least for this campaign in some respects, and shows that maybe we should be paying more attention to our foreign policy. So we're going to talk about that now with Hugh Siegel, who is a Matthews Fellow in Global Public Policy at Queen's University School of Policy Studies and a senior advisor um, on these kinds of issues, has worked with government before. Hugh, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Delighted to be here. So when we take a look at what's going on, they're just removing the chaos of today um, and the past week, but talking about how we got here, um, we've got Canadian troops back in Kabul, first time in seven years, but after we left, we left. There was really no involvement. Like When we talk about foreign policy in this country, we're talking about it today because of the events of today, but in the lead-up for the past seven years and well before that, foreign policy never really seems to enter into it. Maybe we're seeing an example of why it should. Well, I think you're right, and I think the problem with the, um, with the illusion that every election in Canada should only be about domestic issues is that the world has changed pretty radically, and um, in terms of a uh, uh, more powerful China, which is more aggressive, a uh, more adventuresome Russia, which is prepared to invade neighboring countries, the notion that we do not discuss foreign policy, I think, is both naive and unconstructive, and frankly, it lets all our political leaders of any affiliation off the hook uh, when they make their proposals, as they should, for domestic issues of importance, energy, tax, health care, etc. They should also be putting forward very explicit proposals for how they would either sustain or change our foreign or defense policy going forward, and that should be part of the debate uh, for which they're held accountable during campaigns. For example, if you think about the circumstance in Afghanistan before today's tragic explosions. The bottom line is that the President of the United States, on the 24th of April, made it perfectly clear that the United States would be withdrawing all its forces at the end of August. That gave Canada four months to prepare and plan to remove the close to 2,000 um, and translators and interpreters who served with the 40,000 Canadian forces who had served over 12 years uh, in different rotations in that Afghanistan campaign. And our Prime Minister, to his credit, had said, well, we are prepared to make room for 20,000 mm -hmm. Afghan refugees. Well, that's 2,000 
um, of the uh, of the translators, plus I guess members of their family. But what did we do between the twenty fourth of April and now to get that airlift, if you wish, going and underway? I think the answer is probably not enough, and that's the sort of thing we need to discuss in a campaign. I'm not, I'm not attributing the problem to the politics of any particular political party. I'm really saying that foreign policy really counts, and it's really important that our leaders be held accountable on those issues. Hugh, would it be fair to say, it seems to me, as someone who's watched this for a while, when it comes to Canada's foreign policy, we have benefited and quite possibly taken advantage of the fact that we have a very close relationship with uh, the global superpower, and we basically are very reliant on them when it comes to foreign policy, and we don't really feel we have a need to sort of exert ourselves on the world stage and we have to understand you know where we fit in on the world stage but at the same time it seems like we just sort of rely on the u.s to do a lot of this stuff well not only do we rely on them but part of our defense and foreign policy assumes that we are not going to have to step up and make investments in time or money or capacity to ever operate in a world in which the americans are not the dominant force and from time to time Historically, the Americans have gone into more of an isolationist point of view. Uh, they did so between World War One and World War Two, um, and the problem with a vacuum of power, if the Americans decide they don't want to do worldwide policing anymore, they want to spend their efforts, if you wish, on their own domestic issues and their own domestic economic and social uh, priorities, that doesn't mean that their absence does, does, uh, is, is, is without risk to Canada yeah. because the Chinese in Asia, uh, the Russians in Eastern Europe, uh, the Iranians, uh, the North Koreans all have very aggressive plans to fill any vacuum that's created by the Americans uh, in ways that are supportive of their domestic interests, which are not consistent with Canada's domestic interests. We want a world where there is uh, open markets. We want a world where democracy and freedom have, uh, have uh, a prospect. In the last little while, the authoritarian countries have been making great progress and have been increasing in number, whereas the democracies have been reduced. So there's a price to pay for not stepping up. Our armed forces, who do a tremendous job, are hardworking, wonderful people, some of the most professional in the world. They just don't have enough capacity. They don't have enough numbers. At 60,000 uh, to 60 to 70,000 in total, of which only 16,000 are combat ready, um, we're not really able to deploy as we have to, not necessarily for military purposes explicitly, but for humanitarian purposes, for uh, peacekeeping purposes, in support of our allies, uh, as we would expect their support for us. So we really have to have that debate because the amount we are now investing for a country our size and our geography just doesn't get the job done. When we talk about, you know, making it part of the national discussion and certainly um, the national political discussion, how much of it is on the Canadian public? I mean, politicians typically respond if they hear from the public that this is important and I'll be voting based on this. Um, it, sure. it, so does it fall to the voter to say, hey, listen, we're not happy with the way we're conducting ourselves on the world stage and we want to hear some better plans, we want some strategy? I mean, do we need to force the issue? I think it's a combination of a, a little bit of, um, 
self-satisfaction on the part of Canadians. You know, we're geographically away from the rest of the world. We don't really face any tactical threats from anyone. But what's becoming more and more apparent, you know, I mean, um, some uh, some many many months ago now, the uh, our international uh, bio intelligence operation was shut down, and which meant that we didn't get the kind of early notice that that might have provided on the pandemic, which has been such a huge economic and uh, tragic impact uh, in this country over that period of time. So, not investing in that kind of international capacity does have domestic implications, and I would think that. We're going to have two debates in this election. One will be in English, the other will be in French, and um, they will be perhaps 90 minutes long. But the challenge, of course, is how much of that will be spent on foreign policy. And I think what we need to do is see a context in which uh, independent media organizations, uh, people who are involved uh, because they care about issues, begin to put together debates where the parties are invited to come and talk about foreign policy and defense policy. If you look at British elections, if you look at American elections, there's not two debates. There's a whole series of debates sponsored by various not-for-profit organizations to encourage Americans to find out about how their political leaders feel about critical foreign and defense policy issues. We do not have enough of that, and we should have more, and we need more. Now, what's going on in Afghanistan right now, it's all the talk of the country at this moment, but I... Correct me if I'm wrong, Hugh. I don't think this is the kind of thing that will change uh, Canadian thinking to, you know what, we need to bolster our defense forces, we need to change the way we operate, we need to do all these sorts of things. I think this will fade away, sadly. Um, well, yeah, let me disagree. Uh, one, uh, I think you're gen- generically correct. Okay. However, I would expect that when a new parliament is elected... Uh, whoever happens to be uh, the Prime Minister, uh, there will be a desire on the part of parliamentarians to do a full review and series of hearings as to why the evacuation effort on the part of Canada was so minimal and why it achieved so little and what planning was done. And that may provide an opportunity for a broader discussion for the country and the media about what should or should not have happened. And that may be constructive in terms of making the right decisions going forward. Interesting. Yeah. But don't you think there's just a natural aversion among Canadians to being uh, more of a military force? And I, I think we recognize the value in it, but we do rely on the U.S. And I don't know, am I wrong in thinking that your average Canadian isn't somebody who's going to be happy with our government spending on military to the level that the United States does, for example? Well, I don't think uh, there, there's, there, there's almost no countries in the world who spend at the American yeah. level. Uh, but even if we spent at the level of our British allies or at the level of our French allies, we'd be spending about twice as much as what we're now spending. We now spend uh, less than, think about this, of our gross domestic product, 2%. Other countries spend 10% or 15%. If we merely spent 3%, that would almost double our capacity to deploy for humanitarian and other purposes. And let's be clear, in the last few months, we've seen Canadian forces deployed to help fight fires. We've seen them deployed to go into nursing homes during the worst part of the pandemic to do work that couldn't be done. We have deployed them to places like Haiti when there were needs for humanitarian support. So I think Canadians do believe that Canada, as a, um, as a, as a country of, of substantial economic capacity, uh, part of the G8, should be able 
to do that when necessary, and the notion that we can't, I think, would bother Canadians, and I think a proper debate during a campaign on this issue would bring that to light. So I don't underestimate Canadians' concern for the larger world. I think, like any country, we worry about our own circumstance first, and that's perfectly uh, understandable, but I really do believe that the world is shrinking, and the threats from the authoritarian countries, like China, like Russia, like Iran, are growing dynamically. And I think Canadians worry about that and what that means for their kids' future, for markets, for the ability to Canadians to move around the world, for the protection of freedom and democracy. So I'm, I'm optimistic that that mindset that you referred to, which I think you're quite accurate about, can change. And, and, and this week's events, you think, could crystallize that and would, would sort of push it to the forefront, at least for this campaign, make it a, a yes, talking point, at because, least. Because it's about human beings. Yes, right? yeah. This is not some abstract notion. This is about human beings waiting in a sewage disk ditch to try to get into an airport, waving their Canadian papers, and not getting anybody to respond. That's something I think every Canadian can understand and identify with. Great discussion, Hugh. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. All the very best. Thank you. That is Hugh Siegel, who is the Matthews Fellow in Global Public Policy at Queen's University School of Policy Studies and a Senior Advisor at Aird Burles LLP. So, getting to the federal election campaign and uh, bringing you uh, the stories that we've been told matter to Canadians. Uh, we just had a discussion about foreign policy and how it doesn't seem to really register during a federal election campaign very often. Uh, at least not to the level of, you know, things like health care and all the rest of those sorts of things that always are topics of discussion. Um, when Canadians were asked about what's important to them during this federal election campaign, one of the things that was very high on the list was climate change. It's on the minds of a lot of Canadians. What are all the governments doing in terms of dealing with the changing climate? And as we know, um, all the parties have basically come together with some sort of platform, some sort of discussion around this. Um, So what we're going to do here is talk about what they're talking about doing, not necessarily in terms of stopping climate change, but um, how, how how would they... encourage Canadians to adapt to what's already happened, which is an interesting discussion. We've had it a few times uh, in terms of the drought that we saw this summer and the wildfires and things like that. Okay, how do we make ourselves better positioned to deal with some of the things that we're now facing? So we're going to have a discussion with Robin Edger, who is the National Director of Climate Change for the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Robin, thank you for your time this morning. Appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me, Shay. Now, before we get into the election component of this, first of all, I didn't know the Insurance Bureau of Canada had a national director on climate change, but it makes perfect sense. Just um, give us an idea of what you do in your role. I imagine this is a major consideration for insurance companies. It really is. I mean, annual insured losses in Canada last year were $2.4 billion from severe weather alone, which is about six times higher than it was in the 80s or 90s. And, you know, as as you mentioned, climate change is only getting worse. We can only imagine where those numbers would go. So even beyond just good corporate citizenship, um, because severe weather from climate change impacts insurers' bottom lines so um, directly, um, they're incentivized to, to um, deal with the issue and help governments deal with the issue. And that's why, frankly, insurers have been ringing the alarm bells about climate change for decades. Yeah, exactly. It affects you, uh, the bottom line, in a big, big way. And, and, and you're right. You know, when we talk about wildfires and floods and all those sorts of things, those, those, when we always talk about the most expensive 
um, insurance incidents in our country's history. That's always what it is. It's always something natural that's done it. You know, Fort McMurray fire, things like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. And we've we've seen. I mean, summer after summer, we've seen these kinds of events. Obviously, uh, it's become quite acute this summer in BC with all the wildfires. And you know, we saw in Lytton uh the the town beat canada's previous heat record by four degrees which climate scientists say is a one in one thousand year event that couldn't happen but for climate change and of course after beating the record it beat the record the next day beat the record the day after that and then burned to the ground the day after that so so yeah the, the impacts uh happen every summer and i i know you know being in edmonton and being as close to fort mac as you are uh you and your listeners don't need to be told that no Exactly, yeah. So let's take a look at what we're hearing on the campaign trail from, uh, well, at least we'll do the big three. We'll see how much time we have. But when we talk about what they're doing in terms of adaptation policies, we always hear a lot of talk about mitigation and and carbon taxes and all the rest of that sort of stuff. And um, in a lot of ways, people are saying we need to focus more on adaptation at the same time, at least. That needs to be a common discussion. So uh, let's start with the Liberal Party. Are we hearing a lot of them in terms of this is what we're going to do to deal with the reality that we're living in now? You know, certainly more than we've ever heard before. As you say, adaptation has sort of always been the poor cousin in the, yeah. the relationship with mitigation. But we saw just last week the Liberals announced that they're going to expand their home retrofit program that right now um, homeowners can use to access funds in order to make their homes more energy efficient. Uh, now they'll be able to access those funds in order to make their homes more uh, climate resilient. So that, that's a big step. Um, they've also announced that if reelected, they would institute a home rating system where, you know, right now you can have an inspector come into your home, uh, do an Energuide rating, where, again, they would be rating the energy efficiency of your home and then giving you um, certain steps that you can take to make your home more energy efficient. With this program, it, it would be a similar program, but for climate adaptation. So, um, you know, they would look at your home and then at the end, depending on where you are geographically and what um, perils you're exposed to, they mm. would be giving you steps you can take to reduce um, your exposure to flooding or wildfires or any other impacts. Okay. All right. NDP, I know they're really big on, on the mitigation side, really big, but I can't think of anything they've talked about in terms of adaptation. I, I haven't seen anything yet that, the, you know, we're still only uh, early on in the campaign, so perhaps they're going to be rolling something out. But yeah, as of right now, I haven't seen anything yet in their platform. Yeah, and when we take a look at the Conservatives, we know that um, th- there were some issues with them around climate change, and they not all the parties on board to the same extent. But the leader is coming out and talking a lot about climate change. I think he recognizes it is important to Canadians. And, you know, he takes a look at that polling and says, you know, okay, Canadians say this is an important election issue. We need to be on board. So, so what are they doing in terms of adaptation? What have they brought forward so far? So in their policy platform, they've brought forward the idea of a national disaster resilience advisor. So that would be somebody who would play a central role in terms of um, organizing all kinds of actions within government to focus on uh, and deal with climate-related disasters. So right now, you know, uh, this is an issue that cuts across many departments. Some departments focus more on disaster response. Some focus more on climate adaptation and resilience. Um, this would be a person in office who would coordinate all that action and get everybody pulling in the same direction. So we, we think that would be important. Um, and I think just as important, particularly as the polls have narrowed, is that in their policy platform, they have, uh, they've said that they will do a number of things that the federal liberal government has already done. So from our point of view, obviously that um, de-risks the, the uh, political environment in the sense that Actions like a national action plan on flooding, a national adaptation strategy based on measurable targets, 
um, taking an adaptation lens to infrastructure spending just to make sure that we're not spending on infrastructure that will then be, you know, washed away in floods in a few years. Um, those those are actions that have already been taken by the federal liberal government and that the conservatives in their platform have said that they'll um, undertake as well. So when we talk about these adaptation policies and things like that, is it relatively new? Is this the first election campaign where this has become something that the parties are paying attention to, realizing that um, it's having a dramatic impact every year in this country now and they need to have some sort of framework around how to handle it? Absolutely. I, I don't recall in my lifetime ever seeing adaptation measures um, fronted in policy platforms. I mean, even as recently as, as the 2019 election. So, you know, I think it's become clear as, you know, the planet's already warmed one degree and Canada's actually warmed two degrees and northern Canada's warmed three degrees. And, you know, as we spoke about, the, the impacts of climate change are such now that I think most people recognize it as a today problem. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think in the past, we only spoke about it as a future issue. And the parties are responding to that, and they're responding to to voters' needs in that regard. Excellent stuff. Thanks very much, Robin. Appreciate it. Thanks, Shay. Yeah, thank you for joining us. That is Robin Edger, who is the National Director of Climate Change for the Insurance Bureau of Canada. The whole vaccine, proof of vaccination plan, how's that going to work? And... um, Again, this is not a discussion about whether it's the right way to go, the wrong way to go. That ship has sailed, my friends. It's been brought in in a number of different places, a number of different businesses, a number of different employers, on and on. The list goes, and there's more and more at it every day. That's the reality. That's where we're at. So the question is, how do we work within that system? And we know the federal government is working on some sort of an certificate or an app or or whatever it is, that's part of the problem. We don't have the details. It's not available yet, and we don't know when it will be. Um, the Alberta government has their My Health Records app that you can go to. I don't know how that's supposed to work in terms of, you know, it, can it be a screen grab? I don't think so, because if you screen grab your vaccination information, there's no name attached to it. Uh, you can print it off, and then I guess you lug around a sheet of paper. I, I'm not sure. We don't have a good streamlined system in Alberta. Other parts of the country have come out with just cards in BC. Uh, same thing in Ontario, Quebec, things like that. They're coming up with simple systems that people can use. It's happened in the United States. It's happened all over the world. Uh, we're way behind on this one. Now, there is a local developer, Zach Hussein from Calgary, who has developed something called Port Pass. It's an app. Uh, it's been around for a while, and it's starting to see some uptake. So we'll get some details on what it does, how it works, and if it could be an answer to our problems here. So Zach joins us now. Uh, Zach, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Good morning, Shay. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's explain what Port Pass is, first of all. It's been around for, you've been working on this for a while now. Just tell us what Port Pass is and how it works. Sure. Port Pass is a proof of vaccination and or test result app on the iPhone or Android devices and that people that don't have an iPhone or an Android device can use the web portal that is synced to the mobile devices. Okay, so is it just like, you know, the uh, the Canadian Arrive Now app or, or My Health Records or whatever, you have to go in and physically upload your proof of vaccination? Is that how it works? So there's two methods. One is we are partnering up with several pharmacies, rapid test centers, where they can upload it directly into your port pass, which is fully secured and is encrypted. So nothing is ever stored on our platform. So for example, ArriveCan or some of the other apps that we've seen, such as in Quebec, it actually recently got hacked um, by a hackathon. And, you know, we're able to keep 
data secure because I think before I started this project, that was the thing at the forefront. Yeah. Privacy and data of Canadians. Yep. And you're confident that that's not an issue. So when you're carrying around this app on your phone, no information is actually contained in there. It's just, um, I don't know, like a screen saying, hey, this person's fully vaccinated and that's it? So what it is, is it's a 2D visible digital seal QR code. So it matches the World Health Organization, matches the international aviation standards. And basically, say, for example, you and I are going to the Edmonton Oilers game. We will show this QR code that's secured and encrypted. It won't say any information. And that person that scans it has to use the Port Pass app as well. Scans the QR code. And it will show, again, in very basic terms, blue, red, yellow, green. This person's uh, fully vaccinated. This person is tested positive or negative. And, um, you know, if someone doesn't want to get vaccinated, that's fine. And they, they will have to do a rapid test. That is required. Okay. And I think the Oilers have said that. So this app is used for both. Um. The, the question I have here, okay, first of all, you, you've got some partnerships with pharmacies and with some testing centers and things like that, so the private sector is involved. I mean, the vast majority of vaccination in Alberta has been done through AHS. Government involvement, I think, Zach, is going to be the key here, right? You're going to need, just for the officialness of it, is that something that you're, you're trying to deal with? You know, I have been trying to deal with it since our last conversation. I mean, since May, I've been emailing yep. everybody. I, I can't get through. I have it here, you know. It's it's really hard because from the federal level, no one's listening, and they keep giving me the round of around. And uh, from a provincial level, of course, you know, at least give me a little bit of leeway here to say, hey, guys, if you are using or wanting proof of vaccination, please look at this. If we're not going to create an app, then it's here. It's already here. You know, what's a little frustrating is the BC just announced last week that they're going to be using um, a vaccine passport of some sort. Ontario is looking at this and I'm trying to reach out to every government and saying, guys, we have it here because if the BC individual wants to go to a Blue Jays game and vice versa, it's not going to work. So there's going to be a a jam there where people are going to say, well, we don't take this or we don't know what this is. Is this a legitimate document or not? Because that person scanning that ticket will not know. And uh, the poor pass is a goal to centralize it all, where if you go to a restaurant, if you go to an event, if you go travel uh, domestically, people recognize what the poor pass is and it is acceptable. So various organizations, such as some of the largest law firms in Canada, are actually implementing the poor pass. Some of the greatest restaurant chains are uh, planning to put this in. And same with arenas and stadiums. So we're seeing a tick. I just need, you know, Shay, your help or the media's help to say to the government, please, here it is. We don't need to build the app. Stop spending taxpayer dollars. We have it here. That's all. I just need recognition. That's it. So you're getting, that's the other question that I had. Okay, if the government's not playing ball, uh, it may not work for international travel. It may not work for things like that. But if you can get private industry on side and, you know, the Oilers Entertainment Group or the Saddledome Group comes together and says, you know what, this pass will work for us. Um you're at least servicing that part of it, and like you say, restaurants. So you can have private sector sign on and say, this is uh, good enough for us. This will work for entry into whatever it is they're, they're running, right? Yes, that's for sure. And the private sector has come on board, which is really exciting to see. I mean, obviously, we've reached out to the Oilers recently to see if we can open up that conversation right now. So if they are hearing this, I'm open. <laughs> um. 
the other question is, is there a cost to signing up to Port Pass? I know a number of people already have, right? You've got over a half million Canadians that are using this? We have a half a million Canadians, over actually half a million Canadians signed up. We have, it's free. It is free for Canadians to use. Okay. Well, Zach, I, you know, it, it makes so much sense on so many levels. It really and truly does. If people want more information, where can they go? What's the website? Just portpass.ca? Portpass.ca. Perfect. Okay. Zach, thanks for the update. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Shay. That's Zach Hussein, who is CEO of Port Pass. He's uh, based in Calgary. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.